Built Not Born, episode 39. I'm Joe Chicarone. Thank you for joining us. Today's guest is Drew Vogel. Drew Vogel is a third degree black belt in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu under Phil and Ricardo Miglaris of Balance Studios. Drew is the owner and head instructor of Framework BJJ located in Seattle, Washington. In today's episode, Drew and I discuss life, jujitsu, family, the COVID-19 shutdown, what it was like to be an entrepreneur who moved across the country to follow his dream to open his own Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Academy, Framework BJJ, only to face a global pandemic. Drew and I discuss how Jiu-Jitsu, like life, is all about peaks, valleys, plateaus, and how both benefit from having a long-term perspective. Drew discusses why gratitude helps you both in jiu-jitsu and in life. We discuss how fatherhood has changed his daily routine. We discuss what it was like to be a small business owner during the COVID-19 shutdown. Drew is definitely one of my mentors in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He's such a great guy. He's a phenomenal teacher. He has the ability of making complex techniques simple and making simple techniques fascinating one of the best things about doing this podcast is being able to reconnect with people you haven't spoke for in a while. I think it's been five years since I spoke to Drew. It was so awesome to catch up with him. I hope you enjoy. So thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Drew Vogel, third-degree black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, owner of Framework BJJ in Seattle, Washington, entrepreneur and family man. And remember, life is built, not born. Drew Vogel, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's been a long time, over five years. It's been a while. Excited to have you. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? In short, a second degree black belt under Rick and Phil Miglaris of Balance Studios. And I'm the owner of Framework BJJ, which is a jiu-jitsu school in Seattle, Washington. Where did you grow up? I mostly grew up in New Jersey. I was born in New York. When I was about five, we moved to central Jersey, a place called Lawrenceville, New Jersey. I grew up there until college when I moved to Philadelphia. And that was pretty much that. Yeah. So Central Jersey was close to Trenton, Princeton area. I find 10 years old, right around that time, is a very formative time for people. And the dinner table says a lot. What was it like around the dinner table when you were 10 years old? Who was there? Could you describe the scene? So it was me, my brother, my dad, and my mom. And we were never a super sort of traditional, okay, it's dinner time at 7 p.m. Everyone sit down and set the table and... We, we never really did that as much. We did sit at the table occasionally and eat, but usually we were peeking over our shoulder to see if The Simpsons was on or The X-Files. And we weren't the most social, like we're all introverted people, like my whole family is like that. So we just sat and just did our own thing at the table. I would have a little notebook I'd be drawing in. My mom would be reading a book or looking at a magazine. Yeah, it, it was not the traditional dinner table scene. We were just doing our own thing. <laughs> 
Instead of the phone, everybody's on their books and magazines. That's perfect. Exactly. Looking back, what's the most vivid or say powerful memory of your childhood? It's funny. The the one that always comes to mind first is actually my first real memory, my first distinct memory, which was the day that we moved from New York to New Jersey and the day that we drove in. Because I remember when we drove thinking how dirty New York was and then like, like crossing over into New Jersey and remarking how clean it was and how like organized everything looked. And I don't know why that struck me when I was a kid, but that was just like my first impression. And I just remember coming online in that moment. So yeah, that was kind of my, even now, the most clear memory that I have of being a little kid. I like that Jersey being the clean state. Yeah. It's so weird. <laughs> that is awesome. Looking back, who was your biggest influence as a kid who had the most impact on you probably my older brother josh and his friends we lived in a a neighborhood that was like a big circle it was a big development kind of thing and my brother and his friends were the generation before me they were five six years older than me so i looked up to them and watched what they were doing and just copied them they had a big skateboarding gang if you want to call it that they used to all go out and skate every day so that was my of course i got a skateboard and i would just follow them around but half a block behind them and uh, yeah wherever they went i just tried to follow and see what they were up to and so yeah i would say my brother and and actually one of his best friends at the time is now my stepbrother as well so they were both my older brothers so they were the ones i looked up to for sure so right now you're in Seattle teaching Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu at Framework BJJ in the city. What brought you to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? How'd you get involved? I started martial arts training when I was 12 in New Jersey, but I was training a traditional sort of Japanese style of karate called Shotokan. That came about because my parents had a friend who was actually an instructor and she lived right downstairs from us. As a birthday present, I asked my parents, I either want to do karate or I want to do boxing. I don't care which one. I want to do one or the other. So they introduced me to, her name's Marcy downstairs, and we started training together. Marcy introduced me to her instructor, who happened to be really high level and very experienced old school Japanese competitor from Japan. He was a world champion in Japan and had moved to Trenton, New Jersey to teach back in the 80s. And so Marcy took me there and I just kind of fell in love with martial arts and I really liked karate and I really liked the idea of one day owning a school, opening a school. But when I went to college in Philadelphia after living in New Jersey, I couldn't find a karate school that kind of lived up to that one. That was around the time that I kind of took a pause from training and my brother Josh found out about balance and introduced me to Rick and Phil. And it just went from there. My love for the martial arts just transferred into jujitsu at that time. You remember what it was like walking onto the jujitsu mat for the first time? Yeah, I actually remember my first class. My brother and I, at the time, I don't know if there wasn't a basics program or if Rick and Phil just let us slide into the sort of intermediate advanced program, but he was letting us spar the first day. Like he gave us a lesson and I think it was like us and maybe two other people on the mat. And I remember he taught us the prayer hands block and he taught us the triangle from closed guard and maybe an arm bar or something like that. And no, <laughs> it was crazy. And like Rick was floating around too. So it was almost like a private lesson with those two right off the bat. And yeah. he let Josh and I just spar together <laughs> on the mat and just start from the guard. And we just try to catch each other and crank each other, each other's necks and break each other's arms and whatever little we knew from that one class. But I remember because at the time, my brother and I were both cigarette smokers. We both picked up smoking cigarettes. My parents smoked our whole lives. So it was like a very natural thing for us. And after class, because we were smokers, we were gassed out completely. And 
I can't remember if it was that day or one of the days right after, but we would train and try to kill each other and then run off the mat and go puke in the bathroom. You guys would puke after your classes. Like you would go train. <laughs> I remember you and Josh telling me that's true. Okay. Yeah, that's very true. How soon after you met jujitsu did you stop smoking? That's funny. So we trained for about six months, still smoking the whole time. <laughs> and then we stopped training for a period of, I want to say maybe four to six months. And in that time, Josh actually came back to jujitsu before I did. But when I came back, I made the choice. I was like, I can't do both. I have to choose one or the other. And I really don't want to be a smoker. I never did. It was something I was always about doing, especially being into martial arts and training and wanting to stay healthy. It was something that I meant to quit at some point. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to use this as my excuse to quit. And it didn't take long once I decided, honestly, it was pretty quick. It was, I can't remember if I did like a chewing tobacco or not chewing tobacco. What do you call it? The nicotine gum. Yeah, I can't yeah. remember if it was something like that. I used something else as a vehicle, but yeah, it was, it was very difficult to quit for sure. But I just, every time I wanted a cigarette, I would train and eventually I replaced one habit with another and yeah. jujitsu became my new obsession. That was that. Th thank God you didn't roll with the chewing tobacco. Imagine that on the mat with the big thing in your jaw. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> if I wouldn't work too good. What point did you decide, you know what, not only do I want to do this, this Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but I want to teach it and I want to do it for a living. Like, how did that come about? I had to kind of nail down a time. It was probably around mid blue belt level. So at the time I was, I started when I was 20. So I was probably 22 or so. And it didn't really happen right off the bat only because I was still in Shotokan mode. I was thinking that I was learning jujitsu to defend against it in case in a self-defense situation or whatever situation, even a competitive environment, in case I had to not get taken down to the ground or if I got taken down, how to get back up. So I was still not sold on it until I became a blue belt and I, I just it clicked with me and I became a little bit more skilled on the mat and more comfortable rolling and stuff like that. And I, I kind of just not abandoned Shotokan per se. I still, to this day, think about it. I definitely traded up and, and just put all my energy into jiu-jitsu and transferred my dream or my vision of opening a school into a jiu-jitsu program. Thanks for sharing that. Similar on my side, I did about 12 years of stand-up. Uh, I did the Gojuru Karate, American yep. Kempo. Had a second-degree yep. black belt in Kempo. And yep. I would go to the Kempo school. I'm not the baddest guy in the room, but I would hold my own. Then yeah. I found jujitsu. I'd walk down the max size and yeah. I got destroyed. Not all you got beat today, you got demolished. Yeah. They took your manhood, put it in a bag and said, why don't you go home and see if you could come back another yeah. day. It was just like, oh my God, what is going on here? It's just so humbling. That's the eye-opening part is you're coming in as a black belt already. So you, yeah. you can't help but think. You're Something, not yet, not bulletproof, absolutely yeah. helpless. Yeah, that was my experience. Yeah, for sure. And there was a point, there was one day, literally that second blank belt goes into the back of a drawer and I grab the right. white belt and right. I'm just, I'm a white belt now. And I just restart again and the journey just begins again. I wouldn't change a thing. Like it's, it's just so eye opening. Like I couldn't walk around yeah. with that level of ignorance. And once you were exposed to it, like what you didn't know, like I couldn't right. walk around. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, that was, I was definitely in the same boat and as comfortable as I was striking. And even to this day, I think when you learn something that young, it does stick with you. So I still feel fairly comfortable on my feet, but in jiu-jitsu and particularly in the clinch position, I felt like a robot in the beginning. I was just not comfortable with closing the distance. I was not comfortable once I had my arms around someone, keeping my head tight to them and my hips tight. That just felt very 
I just wanted to break away right away. It took a long, long time to reprogram that instinct. And now it's the opposite where, where like the striking is not nearly as comfortable as when I grab a hold. It sticks with you. And I think uh, with the striking stuff, it is, it's great to have that background and particularly the distance management and the footwork and just knowing how to take a punch. But it takes longer than people realize to reintegrate that into jiu-jitsu because you have to go into jiu-jitsu with that white belt mindset of I know nothing. Mm-hmm. And the more you try to hang on to what you did know, the longer it takes to improve. Even when you see a lot of people come in from wrestling or from judo or whatever, and it's, it's almost worse because they are so similar that the crossover is there and people want to make the connection right away. Mm-hmm. But they're also different enough, particularly in the rule set, that I think it does more harm than good in the beginning. It's good to just forget anything that you learned before, jump in full tilt and just allow yourself to be that inexperienced beginner and that blank slate, you know? such a process. The first season of the podcast, there, there was definitely a handful of people that w- went through Bound Studios. One, Sean Nesbitt, another one, Andrea Terrain, Clayton Price, oh, yeah. another one. One of the common stories, one of the names that always keeps coming up is Drew Vogel. Everyone has a Drew story, how you okay. help them at some point, either they're ready to quit or you, you pull them aside and you just help take their game to another level. How would you define your teaching style? I think it's something that's always developing and changing for sure. But when I had interaction, particularly with those three people that you mentioned, I had already been training for a long period of time. And I think towards the end of that training experience at Balance, I myself changed a lot about how I perceived jiu-jitsu and how I looked at it. And what became, you know, more important to me was the self-defense element of jiu-jitsu, but also developing a healthy relationship with jiu-jitsu and training in a way that will benefit you long-term and not just short term, right? There are many things that you can do. You can train twice a day and compete every weekend and do all this stuff. In the short term, you will benefit. But I think that it's easy to lose sight of what you want your jiu-jitsu to look and feel like when you're 60 and 70 and 80 and all that stuff. When I'm confronted with people that are on the more frustrated end of jiu-jitsu, maybe injured or they just don't feel like they're progressing, I do try to instill in them, just think long term, like the learning process is not a linear thing. It doesn't go like this in jiu-jitsu. It's always peaks and valleys and plateaus for a while and then jumps. I think my teaching now reflects more of that kind of, I guess you could say a holistic sort of approach where if you're training in a way that's, that's truly beneficial and in a way that is healthy and sustainable and all that stuff, then it doesn't, it's not frustrating anymore. It's just fun. So I think that's where my head is these days for sure. I was so lucky to spend so many years with you down in the Balance Center City. You made basics exciting, the fundamentals. Your basics class, if you took a picture of who was in your basics class like 2010, then you go 2015, that's five yeah. years, which is an eternity in a martial arts school. The turnover yeah. is crazy in five years. It's sure, yeah. the same crew people still training the basics under you. It's the yeah. same group, like that group that you taught in a way that made the basics almost must-see TV. Where does that come from? Why do you think there's such a draw um, by people that have been there for years and they keep showing up? I think it's easy to treat the basics as though it's something that you learn and then you move on. You get the basics for six months or however long it takes, and then you start doing the advanced stuff and kind of never look back. And I think that's a lot of people. And I think to a degree, that was me too. When I first started, I, I first started loving the basics and the self-defense and all that, and then got sidetracked or derailed into more sportive competitive stuff and i was competing a ton and i think it depends on the people that are around you like my little group of people when i was a blue and purple belt were very competitive and they encouraged me and to compete and get better and all that so 
it's easy to get derailed, but I try to think about the basics the way that you would think about any advanced move, meaning it takes a long time to develop each one of those pieces of the basics. It's not something that you just learn it and then the way you learned it that first time, it's going to work for you. That's not how it works. That's not how any move works, advanced or basic. You have to develop it and you have to account for all the what ifs and all the adjustments that you need to make according to body size and weight and all that stuff. I think the way I tried to teach and still try to teach my basics classes, depending on who's there that day, if it's day one, then they're getting the broad brushstroke steps of the technique. They're getting what you on our curriculum. But if I've seen that they've done that class a few times and they're circling back again, that's the time that we start making those little adjustments. And I say, okay, this is the move. But if I'm pushing into you, you might have to change to this. If I'm pulling away, you might have to change this. And I think that's what becomes interesting for people is learning how dynamic the basics can be. The thing about the basic techniques is that they're very practicable for a long period of time. There are a lot of advanced techniques that require you to have to invert or they require you to have to shoot your hips underneath somebody in a really dynamic way. And those techniques are not as repeatable for a long period of time. You can do it while you're in shape, while you're young, while you still have that spring. I like working with people that are a little bit more mature and people over 30, 35 people that want to do this for a long time because they recognize the value of taking really simple movements and mastering them to the extent that no matter what your opponent does, you have the ability to adjust to their movement within the context of that basic move. So it's not basic. The move... Basic is such a funny expression. It's a really hard thing to pin down, but basic to me is more just like foundational or essential or something that you're going to fall back on 99% of the time. Mm -hmm. Advanced is those little, very specific, discrete situations where you're encountering someone who's very skilled, knows how to counter all your adjustments for the basics, and then you'll go into something more advanced. So for me, it's just an endless process of refinement. And Christy and I talk about this all the time because we teach the basic curriculum now that we taught back then. Nothing's changed. Mm -hmm. The same sheet of paper. But our understanding of it and our ability to teach it and all those things have developed within that context. And I think if we would have given up that curriculum and maybe rewrote our basic curriculum, it would have been very reinventing the wheel and starting from scratch. And I think that's why people don't improve on the basics. I think that they try to reinvent the wheel too many times when really it just takes a long time with that initial information. The techniques may evolve, but the principles stay the same. Like when you talk about those core concept moves, there's maybe there's 36 techniques that they decide are the core Gracie of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Like the principles in them don't change. They'll be the same principles a hundred years from now where the techniques may evolve. Nothing teaches you those principles like the basics. Nothing gives you as well-rounded a foundation and all those important principles and concepts than the basic moves for sure. Personally, the reason why I'm still training is you, I came back, I started an exercise, uh, then Phil and Rick wrote about balance. I joined the first week. I was there for about a year. We had a baby and we moved to the suburbs. I stopped for seven years, like just cold turkey, not one class. Then I jumped back in seven years later and I jumped right into the intermediate class. Like I'm a blue belt. I'll be fine. And (laughs) just got destroyed, destroyed for like months at a time. And I was like, what am I doing? There's so many other things I can be doing with my time. Either you saw it or I I came to you and we had a talk on the mat and you're just like, listen, you got to go back to the basics class, come to my basics class, go back to the fundamentals, train the basics for a couple months. Fast forward 11 years later, it's still taking the basics class every week. That's awesome, man. You were balanced for how many years? So I started in 2003, it was December, 2003. And then 
I was there all the way up until we moved here in November of 2016. So that's uh, what, 13 years? 13 years. Okay. How did you decide, A, it was time to open up your own academy and B, how'd you pick Seattle? I decided it was time to open up my own academy because I had been at Balance for a long time, not just training, but also as a black belt. I had been there. I had already gotten my first degree on my black belt. So I, I was training as a black belt there for a good period of time, good chunk of time. And in the midst of that too, Phil had the instructor's course, which you did as well. That was also a launching pad in my head of, okay, I know this stuff better than I thought I did when he was teaching that class. And that was a good sort of confirmation for me that I was ready was, you know, that everything that he was teaching were details that I had remembered him teaching me thousands of times, countless times. So those things in and of themselves were like, all right, I'm ready. I just, I didn't know where to go. I just felt a little bit like I was spinning my wheels and there were already so many talented black belts at balance. It was almost a waste in a way because like Rick and Phil were in the office, me and Josh are in the office, Angie, Chrissy, like all these Crazy. people. Yeah. The talent there. So it was just insane. There were so many amazing black belts that were there all the time. The talent level was just crazy. Yeah. And it felt like, man, we need to just spread this out a little bit. Just like it was just so concentrated. Chrissy and I, we had lived in San Diego for a year in 2009. We went away. She went to school. I was training out there, came back. And we knew that we liked the West Coast, but we knew that San Diego wasn't quite our thing. So we always had it in our head that we're probably, if we open a school and we move away, it's going to be out. And then before we did, we had two really good friends in Philly that decided to move to Seattle themselves. I'm not sure what prompted them, but they moved here and they told us about it. We would still keep in contact and we came and visited them, kind of half for the sake of visiting them and half to see Seattle and what it was like. So we came at like the worst time of the year because Seattle's known for its really crappy weather. That's like the thing here. So we wanted to see it at its worst. And if we liked it at its worst, we knew that when it's grayed out, we'd be really into it. So we came in, I think, February and visited and we just fell in love with it. We really thought that it was a very clean environment. There was a lot of nature around. There was the city, there was the water, there's the, the woods. There's all these beautiful components that all come together here. The quality of the food that we had while we visited was crazy good and we were just blown away and we're very food motivated. So yeah, <laughs> that was pretty much all it took, honestly. We thought with our stomachs to a large degree. That was it. There was no other real reason. We just happened to find it because we had good friends that lived here and that was it. We never particularly thought of Seattle as a possibility, I don't think, not in any conscious way anyway. I'm going to switch gears a little bit to the part we call share your secrets. So the listeners get to know you a little bit more. What's the biggest challenge you ever faced? The biggest challenges for sure, the things that come to mind when I hear the word challenge were definitely my personal challenges. And, and one of those was my mom passing away when I was about 20. And that was also around the time that I found jiu-jitsu and around the time that I thought about quitting smoking and all that stuff. So my mom passing away was a huge challenge. It affected me for a long time and it still does to a degree, but I think that's the first thing that comes to mind. And the second thing that comes to mind is honestly quitting smoking. Mm. That was a huge challenge for me. And that's something I don't still battle with at all. That's something that's, I smell a cigarette now and it makes me sick, but I think it's when people begin smoking cigarettes, I think they underestimate how difficult it's going to be to quit. And that was something that, man, I battled with. That was really tricky. So I would say that those were my biggest challenges as far as just personal stuff. There were obviously challenges 
was with COVID was a huge hit to us and our school. And we almost overnight, we were one of the first schools to close here. We'll close, I think, March 12th or 13th. Almost overnight, we just started losing our student body. And it was 50% gone in a couple of weeks. And luckily, we had enough people that were still there and supporting us and wanted us to come back that we were able to get through it. But man, that was really tough, particularly since we had Dylan right around yeah. that time, right before COVID wow. was born. So you move across the country. That takes a ton of courage. You open up your own academy. That's a big financial move. Then you start growing and and then you're teaching great jujitsu and you're getting a following and and the school's starting to grow and maybe get another bigger location. Then all of a sudden, through no fault of your own, a global (laughs) pandemic happens. Yeah. 50% of your business overnight. Yeah. Um, What's that like? I mean, how, what goes through your mind when something like that happens? All you can really do is is just be thankful for what you do still have. I think that was like where our head went right away. We knew what we lost, but we also said, man, we're just so grateful that we can still in any capacity keep doing this. And our thought process went to like, how, how can we navigate this in a way that we're, we're still productive? How can we still continue to teach online? How can we do Zoom classes? How can we film stuff at home and share with our students in our Facebook group? But that just became our focus. We just redirected and we had Dylan to distract us. So that was actually a really good thing. If it was just me and Chrissy, it would have been much harder. But we had Dylan here and watching him grow up, especially in those early days, was just just amazing. And it kept us very buoyant. It kept us motivated. You know, uh, if for no other reason than we knew we had no choice, we have to make this work for him. We just redirected. And I think part of us knew that this was a temporary situation. We didn't know how temporary. Everyone was saying two weeks to flatten the curve, whatever, which turned into two years. And even now is still here. So we didn't know how temporary, but we knew that eventually things would get better. They could only get better. Oh, that that kept us out of the pits. You know what I mean? That kept us. Yeah, just synthesizing. You go through, you go across the country, you start a new business, you have a global pandemic, but two things got you through it. Gratitude and perspective. Gratitude for what you still have. You focused on right. what you had with the, and perspective, knowing it's temporary. At some point, this yeah. is going to end or it's going to change and you're still going to keep grinding. That's awesome. Man, thanks for sharing that. When you need to clear your mind or recharge your body, what do you do? Yeah. Yoga. <laughs> Yoga. Yes. That's, it's something I like, I have to stop myself from talking about a lot because I know all yep. my students are sick of hearing me talk about it. So, and everyone's different. Maybe it's not for everybody, but for me, yoga has always been the thing that recenters me, refocuses me, calms me down. It, it really seems to take me out of that more anxious minute by minute feeling of a necessity to do or to act, right? Yoga just makes me feel like I'm fine just being here right now, which is just so valuable for me. <laughs> That, yeah. that and jujitsu, I've not found two other things on the planet that center you. Those two at the end, you're just like, I'm happy yeah. that I'm right here right now doing what I'm doing. That's right. Yeah. And I think it could be because of the meditative aspect, because I've always been drawn to activities that kind of have a solo, you could say meditative, but at least focused quality, right? When I was a kid, I used to draw a lot. I would do pen and ink drawings, charcoal drawings, and drawing, sitting for a long period of time, staring at one thing and, and focusing and not being distracted by the outside world gave me a similar feeling to what I get from yoga and even skateboarding to a degree. I used to skateboard when I was a kid. And it's the similar kind of thing. You're It's a craft that you're developing and you're working on and you're just focused on that one thing and 
you're failing and you're continuing to improve all at the same time. And martial arts and Shotokan training was the same thing. Doing a kata, perfecting a kata was very similar. And yeah, jiu-jitsu, especially when you find those moments of, of flow, so to speak, when you're rolling and, and you're not really actively thinking about anything, you're just letting your body sort of take over and letting the timing happen by itself. All of that lends itself to that same feeling, I think. Yeah, you know? both of them intensify the present moment. Where if you're thinking of the past and you're not happy with it, you get depressed. And if you're right. thinking about the future, about something that could happen that not might not be good, you're, yeah. you have anxiety looking That's for God. Right. But when your focus just was on in front of you and yes. yoga and jujitsu, nothing does it better than those two things. Your best self is right there in the present moment. Yeah, I agree. And I think yoga and jiu-jitsu are great complements to each other because jiu-jitsu can, no matter how gentle you are on the mat, it can be very hard on your body. It's just a physical stress that you're putting on your body. And especially if you have a training partner who's especially aggressive or whatever, just moves a lot or who knows. Yoga always felt like it took all the stress out of my body and wrung it out after jiu-jitsu. And that's why to this day, I still am attached to yoga. Phil, obviously our instructor, taught us yoga right around the same time that we started jiu-jitsu. He was doing yoga classes to add balance and he actually had a yoga program. People that would just do the yoga and not even train jiu-jitsu. He would have them come in and then when they left, the jiu-jitsu people would come in. Ever since then, I've always been really fascinated and just I see the value in yoga and I never dedicated myself to it with the level of attention that I did jiu-jitsu for sure. Like I'm very much still a white belt in yoga and i'm happy with that i love not being a yoga instructor and and spending my time kind of teaching i, I like just doing it back of the room but, man, no, no one's looking at you you just do your thing and flow and you're yeah. in charge of the curriculum it's a magic yeah and you don't have to talk you don't have to address anything it's just i don't like answering questions about yoga is is so far as like why do you do it this way and not this way why is it? it's that's not for me to say. That's for yoga masters to, to talk about. For me, it's just, I don't know. It feels good. That's my answer. <laughs> uh, perfect. Yeah. Now, do you have a book that influenced your life or changed your mind more than any other? Do you have a favorite book? Yeah, there are definitely a few that come to mind. But I think along the line of what we're talking about, there's a book called How Yoga Works. And I can't remember the author. I can't remember how I found out about it. I think I just heard someone in some Facebook group talk about it or something like that. But that's one book that really connected the dots to me between the, with yoga, there's the physical component, but there's also this sort of, I don't want to say mystical, but more spiritual component that I think turns a lot of people off to it. And I think part of that is when you hear people talk about yoga, it's always very muddled. You have no idea what they're talking about. They're just using words that are very unusual and you don't know how it applies to you. And I think that book was something that kind of gave me a launching pad to understand sort of the philosophy behind yoga in a literary way, in a way that's not just someone lecturing you. It was more, the book is a story. It's a fictional piece. It demonstrates all the, the concepts that you hear people go on about when it comes to yoga and, and life in general and karma and all these principles and how they apply. So that that's a book that really made a lot of sense to me. And I really appreciated it. And I think if you're not already into yoga, I don't know if it would appeal to you, but if you have any interest in yoga, it might be something that, that, that could benefit you. I'll put that book in the show notes, the link to it. Thanks for sharing that. How about most high yeah. performers have a routine either to start their day or to end their day, like getting started or winding down. What's the first, say, 60 minutes of either front of your day or back of your day look like? What's your routine look like? The the first half of my, and it changes all the time as when your baby is young and things yeah. are always changing. 
challenging. But for the most part, the thing that I always try to to maximize in the beginning of my day is spending time with Dylan and uh, connecting with him and and just being one of you know the obviously Chrissy's the first face he sees, but I want to always be uh, in the room when he wakes up, and I want him to have that memory of, of us spending time together. And also for me, it's very therapeutic to just get him when he first wakes up and he's in a great mood and he's just very stimulated and he wants to play and read and uh, do all these things. So that kind of sets me right for the rest of the day and puts me in a good mood. And then at the end of the day, I try to always do a little bit of yoga, a little bit of stretching, a little yoga. Even if it's not full yoga, it's me laying on my back on the carpet and just spacing out and moving my limbs around a little bit. That always makes me feel like I, I get better sleep and it calms me down and takes me a little bit out of that fight or flight mentality that happens from rolling late at night because yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. teaching at night, getting off the mat sometimes pretty late. So I'm always pretty stimulated. So that's that routine at night helps a ton. You got to wind down. You got to slowly bring like the, the level yeah. down a little bit. Yeah. It's a great feeling, but man, yeah. if you just let it linger too long, you just don't sleep all that night and it builds into this bad cycle. So yeah, I think that it's important to, to address that. If you're training earlier in the day, I don't find it's an issue, mm. but if I train 8 PM, 9 PM, I, I definitely get hit with that feeling. What's your personal definition of success? How would you define success? Speaking from my own level of of success because obviously if you're talking about financial success then like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk would be the person to ask that question to but according to my perspective of success when i feel successful or when i'm doing things right in my life i feel like i'm spending enough time on all the elements that benefit me according to my personality my way of being right meaning if i, I happen to be a sort of an introverted person or i guess i like to talk a lot but usually one on one or small groups so if I had a job where I had to just, if I was like an event planner or something, and I had to talk to everybody and sell them on this idea and think big picture and just get everybody stimulated all the time, I'd be probably miserable doing just that if I didn't have anything else to balance around that. Because my personality doesn't lend itself to to that much social interaction and that much energy expenditure. I think I reserve a lot for just for being quiet and being in my own head. I prefer to be that way. And I think success to me is when you can align not just your profession, but also the person that you choose to spend time with, your spouse, whatever, and your friends, right? The other people that are not intimates, but people that also are there and in your life and challenge you. I think if you can balance those things and, and coordinate them into a way that suits your disposition, if that makes sense, then I think that you'll find your own success. Synthesizing that, it's freedom to spend the time with the people you want in the manner you want to spend it. Yeah, for freedom. sure. Yeah, that's great. Freedom, freedom's a big thing for me. <laughs> What's the most exciting project you're working on now? I'm always working on the school and always refining what it is we're already doing when it comes to curriculum and when it comes to our teaching methods and just the physical space that we occupy. So for me, it's just expanding, getting back to the point that we were and then growing from there. I think that our first location was a great launch pad. It was a great starting point. It wasn't quite right. Our current location is better. It's bigger and all that stuff, but it's still not perfect. For me, that third place now is my focus. And what excites me is thinking about like getting the space that really benefits and maximizes the quality of what we do and a place that I'm like excited to go to every day and my yeah. students love. 
that's the next project in my head. Here's two fun jujitsu questions. If you could spend a day with any Brazilian jujitsu instructor alive or dead, just pick their brain, train with them, learn from them, who would it be? I would probably have to say Pedro Valencia, who he owns the Valencia Brothers Jiu-Jitsu in Florida, Miami. And I, I had the pleasure of meeting him actually at one of the Jiu-Jitsu summits that he'd on led. Pedro was one of the guests and I talked to him a little bit and I kind of just very minutely got to pick his brain a little bit. But I saw that we saw eye to eye on a lot of things and I really would love to spend a day with him and just see what his mentality is when it comes to topics that are not typically discussed publicly, right? Like when it comes to jujitsu, usually what you hear are either the history of jujitsu or the difference between gi and no gi or the belt system or these sort of broad topics. But I would really like to hear some of his more technical thoughts on certain positions on the mat and uh, certain ways of training and his solutions for certain problems that you can encounter on the mat. I just, I love picking people's brains in that way because I find it to be the most of what their approach is and what their mentality is. And that's what I benefit from is seeing other people's mentality, not to copy them, but to take what's useful for me. Yeah, make it um, your own. Yeah. Yeah. And make it my own and integrate it. So I, he's someone that I really look, look up to a lot and I have a lot of respect for him. And I think he'd be a great person to to hang out with. <laughs> he does that great Friday afternoon talk on the mat. Did you ever see on Instagram? The kind of video is like at the end of class, he has like a five or 10 minute talk to the class. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. Like a philosophy talk. Yeah. 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 He's a deep thinker. He is a yeah. deep thinker. And I found myself usually yeah. Instagram videos after six seconds, I'm on to the next one. And I right. find myself watching his from start to finish. He's a really yeah. thought out. That's a really interesting one. How about what's your perfect first jujitsu lesson to teach somebody? What position or what do you go over? What do you cover? I think standing in base for sure. Standing in base is one of those, obviously it's got its self-defense applications and grappling applications, but it's just a movement that the more comfortable you become with it, the earlier on, the easier a lot of other movements become, including shrimping and including other sort of seemingly unrelated movements. I think they all get easier the more time you spend on that initially. The prayer hands block. So basically being comfortable at that, that mid-range distance, that one arm's length where you can reach each other and getting comfortable with the connection to the biceps, holding the biceps and the triceps and, and you know, having a handle on what to do if they try to go over your arms and under your arms. That's You can apply that to any position on the ground. That's the same thing you do when you're inside the closed guard, top or bottom. Same thing when you're on top, knee on belly, even the mount position sometimes. So I, I think those two, standing in base, prayer hands block. And on the ground, I feel like the trap and roll is always such a crucial technique for everybody. If you haven't seen it, that's something that you need to develop in your jujitsu for sure. There's a lot of even higher belts that that's one, a great example of a move that people see in the beginning and they think they have it mm -hmm. and then they try it in rolling and it doesn't immediately work. So they start to abandon it for other options. Yeah. And that it takes a long time to develop, man. It's the effectiveness is amazing. It's incredibly effective, but to understand the weight distribution and the connection with the person, meaning like their weight distribution on top and how to address that using the trap and roll movement, that takes just years to perfect. And Kieran is actually someone I talked to about this. And one of the things that he said is obviously just, you're not going to develop that technique if you go for it, fail, and then start going for your elbow escape or start going for your hip push escape or whatever. The only way you're going to develop at that is if you limit yourself to just that escape. You allow the person to mount you or you get mounted and you say, no, I'm not going to do any other escape, but try to roll this person off. That's, I think, when you start to get better at that technique. Mm -hmm.
that concept of limiting yourself to one technique is something that is super beneficial for any technique you want to learn on the mat. That's how I always improved in my jujitsu. Even when I was competing a ton, it was just like, if I wanted to get good at something or I felt I needed to, I would just forcibly deny myself all the other options and just zero in on that one thing. Two things there, prayer hands. I have never done that move in the last decade and not thought of you because you worked with me extensively on that and you train basics with you. You get that prayer hands is a bit major move that you learn in the yeah. basics class and you see the importance yeah. of it. It seems boring, but it's so important and, I know. It, and, it's, and it's so hard to master. Wrapping up here, what type of values do you try to pass on to your students? I think for me, one of the values is just passion for the jujitsu, passion for the art. I think I try, Chrissy and I are obviously, we're very passionate about this stuff and we almost to a fault, meaning we'll just sit and talk about it into the night when we should be sleeping. And I, I try to transfer that passion more than anything else, I think, because it's easy to become mired down with, with the frustrations and things not going your way and all this stuff. But it, I think it's harder to just be be grateful for the fact that we all have access to this stuff. And there are people before us that put it out there into the world. And all we have to do is just pay attention to it, to learn it. It's not something that we have to climb a mountain for or, or pay millions of dollars for. It's just out there. So I think I can't help, help but be passionate about it. And I try to demonstrate that with my students. That's a big one. But longevity, for sure, is another big one. Training for longevity and training to be able to do this stuff well into old age and mm -hmm. not thinking so short term and, and small picture about it. The competition element of jujitsu, as important as it is, and it is, can't help but be a short term method. It can't help but be a, a short term way of looking at the art. And I think the more emphasis there is on that, the less emphasis there is on what are you going to do when you're 60 and you're training with the 25 year old purple belts. If you've only ever been exposed to competition jiu-jitsu, you're not going to be able to make any of that stuff work on them. And if you're holding your value on the mat on the basis of what you can physically do, then you're going to be very frustrated and most likely quit when you get older. You're going to say, ah, or you're going to get injured because you're just trying too damn hard to make something work against someone that's stronger and faster and more flexible and all that. So I think training for longevity means taking stock of what you consider to be a victory on the mat. A victory on the mat isn't a submission per se. It's not always a guard pass or a takedown or a proactive movement. Sometimes it's just simply denying your partner from doing exactly what they want to do. Now, they might still get around your defense and find another way to catch you. But if you can at least stifle the thing that they're really good at doing, and make them have to work around you, then I think that's a small victory. And that's something that should give you a little bit of motivation in your training. I think learning to find those little victories will last much longer. And even into old age, I think you can be an old man on the mat or an old woman or whatever on the mat. And I think if you can at least make the, the young killer on the mat have to either stop trying something, or if he has to use 100% of his strength to make it work, and that's that's the only way that he's going to do it. That's a small victory for you because he should beat you with ease mm -hmm. being younger and stronger and faster and all that stuff top of his game. He should be able to just annihilate you. So if your defense is good enough to at least survive a position and make him have to second guess his technique, that's huge. I just finished Richard Bressler's book, Worth Fighting For, the Corian yeah. student. And yeah, yeah, yeah. 
towards the end of the book, he talks yeah. about if a 60-year-old person that you just mentioned can roll yeah. with a 30-year-old person and he just yep. doesn't get tapped. That 30-year difference and they might be 30 pounds heavier. And that's yeah. jiu-jitsu. That's, a, that's one of the purest forms of jiu-jitsu where you just, it's survival. Like that person should destroy the other person, right? Yes. The good and principles that like, we spoke of earlier. Not getting tapped period is that's like winning worlds <laughs> only getting tapped three times is still a victory if you're training with that 20 30 year old kid yeah i i 100 agree i think that's really it's underrated and maybe it goes against our mentality and our cultural mentality of what we perceive to be victory and mm-hmm. showing dominance being the only form of uh victory but yeah i think that's one thing that jiu-jitsu does teach you and i think that's something that like even the founders of this art tried to show and tried to demonstrate elio gracie losing to kimura for instance mm-hmm. that became his biggest victory that that got him the most students out of any yeah. other fight that he had and he won a lot of fights but that loss demonstrated how long he could last with someone that should annihilate him in 10 seconds. You know, yeah. so. What did Kamara say? If you last two minutes with me, I lost. And it lasts like 13 or something with him. Like you, you, That's right. If you last three minutes, you should consider yourself the victor or something like that. And yeah, it ended up being 13 minutes later. Last two questions. If you could go back and talk to the people around that dinner table back in New Jersey when you were 10 years old, what would you want to tell? I think just that I appreciated the way that I grew up and I really appreciated what my parents did for me within the context of, of their abilities. I think like they, um, they both were very much into their own worlds and just the same way I see how easy it would be for me to be that way now with Dylan, they were that way. And my dad was very constantly stressed out about his job and concerned about his job. My mom had health issues. And I think I would just tell them that I know how much is going on in their life. And I really appreciate those little moments that they took to, to spend time with me and to talk to me when they did. Yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. Having kids is hard. And I read recently a good quote, something along the lines of, you think that you're watching your kids grow up, but they're really watching you grow up. That's and great. I think that, That's so good. Like, because I feel so not grown up having a baby now that I can only imagine how they felt. So. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. Appreciation and perspective, gratitude, and some life lessons there. Thank you. Last question. If you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what yeah. would that quote or motto say? So for me, I've thought about this before. I don't have any tattoos. I always like the idea of it. And I just never connected to something that makes made me feel strongly enough to put it on my body permanently. But there are some sort of cheesy quotes that I like that kind of motivate me and they're funny. And there's one quote that was actually someone that visited us and did a seminar. His name's Travis Nawaza. And he came in our early days at Framework and did a seminar. And he was a really funny guy. And Chrissy was talking to him about our approach and how we think about training. And he looked at her and he said, don't talk about it, be about it. And uh, she thought that was really great. And I I thought it really nailed the point too, because it is, it's so easy to get caught up with trying to not sell people, but get caught up with trying to explain to people and make them understand your perspective and what you're trying to do. And at the end of the day, the best way to do that is to just lead by example and just put your head down and, and live the way that you think is right. And the, the people that are ready to benefit from that will, and people that aren't won't, and that's fine too, because we all have something that we need to do better. So yeah, I think that quote was something that really, it's it's great because it's really funny, but it also 
it reminds me to, to just don't convince anybody of anything. Just to keep doing what you know is right. And that's it. Don't talk about it. Be about it. That goes back to what you just said about your kids are watching you grow up. Like lead by example. Yeah. I don't care what your opinion is. Show me your actions. 100%. I think that is about as good as a spot to any to wrap it up. Drew Vogel, thank you for your time, man. It was so awesome oh, to see you again. Thank you for having me on. And I've been looking forward to this all week, in part to do the podcast, but just to catch up with you and see you again. And it's been so long and I miss you and I miss all the guys and gals that used to come and do the basics class on our Tuesday class. And that was those are still like some of my best memories was just coming in and, and catching up with everybody every week and and uh, the fact that we were all so unified in our perspective about jiu-jitsu was really motivating. And that was like a really, that made me feel like I could do it as a school owner, was having that crew and, and you around. So I appreciate you, man. I don't know if I'd still be training was a few years. We all go through the journey and the peaks and valleys, like yeah. you said. Some people come into your life at the right time for a certain reason. And you're one of those yeah. people, man. So I really appreciate you. And all the time awesome. we spent on the mat, just the lessons were amazing. If people were looking for you and Framework Jiu-Jitsu online, where can they find you? Yeah, Framework.bjj.com is the best place. Obviously, we're on all sorts of social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, I think even Twitter, like pretty much everything. So yeah, you can find us pretty easily. Google Drew Vogel, Google Framework, we should pop up. And uh, I accept text messages too at any time. So if you find the number on the website, just feel free to text. You don't have to call or anything like that. If you have any questions for me, I'm always happy to help out any hour of the day. Awesome. Frameworkbjj.com in Seattle, Washington. If you're by there, stop by. It's some of the best lessons you'll ever have. Drew, great to see you, man. Thank you for everything. We wish you and Christine, Dylan, nothing but success in the, in the new year, buddy. Thanks, bro. Keep me posted and keep in touch in the meantime, man. I want to uh, stay connected as much as we can. I know we're obviously across the country from you guys, but you know, it's, uh, it's always good to stay informed about what's happening with you guys. And obviously you're teaching and you're, you're in your own journey right now. So I'd like to pick your brain more about your experience too at some point. Thank you, Drew. All right, bro. I'll catch you soon.